Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. Today, we're going to talk about Resident Evil Village IO Interactive and a follow up on Days Gone 2. But first, let's talk about the Epic Games Store. So, there was a piece of news last week that revealed that Epic Games is going to lose at least an estimated $330 million as a result of all those Epic Game Store exclusives and free games. Apparently, Epic spent $444 million on grabbing up exclusives and free games for the store. This money went towards a bunch of minimum guarantees for publishers and devs. Basically, what that deal means is you go to a publisher or a developer, or Epic goes to a publisher or a developer, and they tell them, Put this game on the Epic Game Store for the first year and we'll pay you $10 million. I, I believe that was the number that was given to Control for being a piece, excuse me, not PC exclusive, but being an Epic Game Store exclusive. And it becomes this minimum guarantee, which means that even if your game, for whatever reason, doesn't generate the amount of money that they put up in order for you to be an exclusive, the money is yours no matter what, even if you exceed or you fail to meet whatever your sales expectations are. So we spoke, we've, I, I believe I've brought this up in the show in the past, just talking about how many smaller developers that are in need of publishers that really take advantage of having that minimum guarantee in order to help the overhead that they had when it came to developing their game or using that money in order to help them finish their game. Unlike a game that has a lot more marketing behind it, some of these smaller titles can get easily lost. And we heard that early on when Epic Game Store was starting to scoop up exclusives were from these small developers that talked about, yeah, if it wasn't for that minimum guarantee, we wouldn't, we probably wouldn't even be able to finish the game. So it makes a lot of sense. And honestly, to me, I really, when I first read this story, I honestly didn't think that that money, 444 million was a lot. And according to predictions made by Apple, the Epic Store will not see any profitability until 2027. If it continues to operate this way, Apple also projects that the store could lose around $600 million by the end of the year. And Apple is tied into the story because that's where we got this number from, is from this court battle that's happening between Apple and Epic. If I'm not mistaken, it's just about to go into a into court right now. I think Tim Sweeney has to testify, and I'm not really sure who from Apple has to testify. Obviously, we've been talking about this story. We talked about it a lot. You can find a few episodes on it on whatever your podcast platform is. I think we had five weeks in a row where we're talking about Epic Game Store versus Apple. And obviously the root of this sort of dispute between the two companies is the fact that Apple takes a 30% cut for any transaction that goes through the App Store and, excuse me, goes through anything that you put on an iOS device, iPad, uh, iPhone, and the fact that the App Store is the only store that's allowed on their platform. So this is the battle that Epic Games is trying to basically prove that because of the amount of reach that Apple has in terms of iOS and how many iPhones are out there in the world, 
They do have a monopoly and they should not be able to lock out other companies from providing their own storefronts. So it's almost like imagine owning a chunk of an entire, I guess maybe this isn't the best analogy, but almost like having a city and only you're able to build your stores there, for example. Obviously, that's not a fair business practice. So when this story kind of first broke, I think the story didn't break last week. I think it was the week before last, and I wasn't able to talk about it in last Monday's episode. But I wanted to bring this up along with the news that Epic closed another funding run, and we'll talk about that shortly. But when I first saw this story, my first thought was, oh, that just makes sense to me. And I actually thought the number was, I looked at that $330 million. I was like, oh, that's actually not bad in terms of a posted loss, especially with everything else that Epic has going on. And I definitely saw some people on social media and some media talking about the fact that, well, this doesn't make any sense for them to be losing that much money. But that's how this stuff works in order to gain market share in a new venture. You have to put up money. It makes it takes money to make money. So the funny thing was that Tim Sweeney responded to this report by tweeting, quote, that's right. And it has proven to be a fantastic success in reaching gamers with great games and a fantastic investment into growing the business. And that's exactly what this is. This is an investment. You don't go up against the behemoth that is Steam and not think that you're going to lose money along the way. I guess one example I can think of off the top of my head is Walmart is in constant battle against Amazon and I think it was a few months ago they introduced Walmart Plus, which is almost like Amazon Prime two-day shipping. And they're probably going to lose some money towards the beginning of it, but their hope is to gain a little bit more of that market share of trying to get their customers back from Amazon. And obviously Amazon is in the news, like a lot of negative news. Maybe they can get more people to come back to Walmart. That's a venture that's probably not going to be instantly profitable for them until they get everything 100% set up and everything scales properly. But you you don't really look at it as like a straight up loss. You do look at it as an investment that you will hopefully get a return on and make that certain part of your company profitable in you know a certain window of time. Now, what was also cool is that Tim Sweeney posted an infographic on his Twitter that reveals some Epic Game Store stats. Over 160 mil million Epic Game Store PC customers, over 56 million monthly active users in December alone. PC players spent $700 million on the Epic Game Store, $265 million spent on third-party PC games. That's a, a pretty big gap between the two. I'm not sure exactly where this $700 million on the Epic Game Store number comes from. Is that, what? what is that? Is that just Fortnite? Like what else could there be that would be considered first party from Epic Games? So it really pales in comparison to third party. And there, there are a couple of reasons for this, I think. Uh, obviously the store is still in its infancy. It's nowhere near where Steam is right now in terms of monthly active users or how many customers that Steam has. So that's probably a factor in terms of why that third party is is in the shadow of that $700 million. But 
they can definitely start growing that a lot more rapidly, but I hope that they're looking into exactly what is it that's, why are we drawing more people to come to us for third-party PC games? And I think it's just an optic issue, and I, I think that the way that Epic looks at it is if we give away free games, people will equate our platform with a great value and sort of a good feeling when you open up the games the epic game store and it launches you know that you're gonna more times than not you're gonna get something for free and they're probably hoping to equate that feeling of joy when you get a completely free game because there were a lot of releases that they did which were pretty huge i remember they had that sort of like Batman pack. It was like five Batman games. I think it was the Arkham Trilogy, Lego Batman. That was one of their big free releases. The, I don't, I'm, I'm probably forgetting the name of the game. It was one of the Total War games. Can't remember exactly which one it was. It was the latest release where you get it completely for free within the first 24 hours. They had Grand Theft Auto Five on there free for, I think it was like a few days or a week or something like that. So they did give away some pretty big blockbuster games. And I think probably that's where their strategy went into. And the fact is that this is obviously still very early on for the Epic Game Store. And it was important for them to once again start gaining market share a lot quicker and now that they have one foot in the door, the I think the most important thing for the Epic Game Store this year is to start to think about things that they can do to begin to separate themselves from Steam and create a better user experience. I think that's really where they need to go this year is they obviously still have a lot of missing features that people have been asking for that they're hoping to get done by the end of the year. But at some point, then you have to step back away from your store and talk about, okay, how is our user experience compared to Steam? How can we provide a better user experience than whatever Steam is doing right now? Because you can't just rely on free games for the rest of eternity for your store. He also revealed that they gave away 103 free games, which equated to $2,407 in total value. And over 749 million free games were claimed. Nothing to uh, be ashamed about. That's a huge number. Now, once again, as I mentioned earlier, company losses to gain market share really aren't anything new. And most companies do look at them as investments, especially if you, you know, scale them properly and do your due diligence when it comes to math and really hopefully be able to figure out, okay, how many years do we have to eat these losses until we actually get a profit? So some Quick examples I decided to look at were now in the year 2021, this was actually the first year in about a decade that Netflix doesn't need to borrow money. Over the course of about 10 years, Netflix has borrowed over $16 billion and all that money was really put together in order to establish their original series, advance the technology very quickly. And this is going to be the first year that they don't have to borrow borrow money <laughs> they're going to be able to cover those loans just straight up on profits alone one recent example that i could give would be disney plus disney plus launched in 2019 late 2019 but disney is projecting it won't be profitable until 2024 so once again this is a written loss for disney but you can see how quickly they're gaining steam and those 
Star Wars shows, The Mandalorian, you see how much money they're putting to the doing all these different Star Wars show, shows, all this money that they're putting into the Marvel Cinematic Universe shows, and it, no pun intended, it shows. Like you can see the quality of something like the Falcon and Winter Soldier. I, sometimes I joke around, like it's pretty funny to look at the Falcon and Winter Soldier. And I remember there was that episode where Bucky's arm was removed and they show this close-up of Bucky putting the, the arm back on. You see all the tech in his shoulder and the arm sort of strengthening and like shifting into place. And I joked around that they, they spent more money on that CGI moment of like five seconds than an entire Flash episode for the CWDC shows. Like these shows aren't cheap at all. In order to produce, they have very high production values. But for Disney, it's an investment and it's going really well. They should be at 100 million users by now. I don't have the official numbers in front of me. But like I said, these things are investments from companies. And if there's a company that can eat up losses right now, it's epic. And it's not just because of Fortnite. It's also because of the fact that they have the single-handedly, they have the most popular engine in our industry when it comes to the Unreal Engine. They do have money to eat right now. They wouldn't go to war with Apple and go through all this litigation and legal fees if they wouldn't, if they aren't confident that they can cover those losses. So this is just seen as an investment. And in my opinion, it's a very smart investment. But at some point, once again, Tim Sweeney and his team are going to have to step back and talk about user experience because I, I think that's really the piece that they're missing. And I think that's the piece that they can use to leapfrog over Steam is to try to make a better experience for their for their consumers. Now, keeping up with Epic, we want to talk about Epic closed another funding round in which it raised another billion dollars. Epic that makes Epic's equity valuation now twenty eight point seven billion. It put out an official press release that confirmed quote. This round includes an additional $200 million strategic investment from Sony Group Corporation, which builds on the already close relationship between the two companies and reinforces their shared mission to advance the state of the art in technology, entertainment, and socially connected online services. So I have brought this up in the past in terms of Sony investing into Epic as a company. I do look at this more as a straight up return type of investment investing into the future and not just the future of epic but the future in terms of the technology that epic continues to build i definitely don't remember what episode it was but on this podcast i brought up in the past the fact that unreal engine is now becoming a lot more than just a video game engine we've seen it used for movies tv shows commercials live casts we've seen the nfl even using the unreal engine in order to make their broadcast just reach a new level. The press release also included the following quote from Tim Sweeney, quote, we are grateful to our new and existing investors who support our vision for Epic and the metaverse. Their investment will help accelerate our work around building connected social experiences in Fortnite, Rocket League, and Fall Guys, while empowering game developers and creators for Unreal Engine, Epic Online Services, and the Epic Games Store. Now, for anyone that's listening to this episode, if you've never heard of Epic's effort to build the metaverse, or you don't know what that is, uh, you can listen to episode 78. It's called Epic Metaverse to learn more about this. It was an entire episode 
I dedicated just to talking about the metaverse and how important and monumental of a feat this next step is going to be, not just for Epic, but you know the impact that will have in the entire world. The metaverse is going to be extremely expensive. This is something that's not going to be cheap. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of collaboration between different companies. And it's good to know that when it comes to building this metaverse, you have a behemoth of a technology company like Sony that's going to be able to help you along the way in order to build more strategic partnerships with other companies. And I think that's one of the reasons why Sony invested it or excuse me, has invested into Epic Games. I had brought it up during that episode about the fact that Sony was one of the first companies to dip their toes into an attempt to build a metaverse, which is PlayStation Home for PlayStation 3. So maybe that's one of the things that drove them or drove a certain team within Sony to look at this as exactly what it is. Like I said, a strategic investment. Now, the other thing that I found interesting was that even after these investments, Tim Sweeney remains a controlling shareholder of Epic Games. That means he controls at least 51% of the shares for the company. I tried looking for exactly how many shares he has. I couldn't find the answer to it. At this point, it probably is just holding on to a steady 51% and probably a lot of the dilution that happened during this recent round was probably 10 cents. Investment was probably diluted a bit. They owned, I believe it was 40% of the company when they invested close to a decade back and they got the absolute deal of a century. I still keep calling it. I don't remember how much it was, but it, it definitely was a steal when you look at how much Epic is worth now. So it's interesting to see that Sweeney is still the controlling shareholder. I wonder how much longer he can actually remain the controlling shareholder, especially given the fact that once again, in order to build the metaverse, you're you, it's almost like you'll have to build almost like an entirely new entity and probably like a brand new company in order to build the metaverse and look at investments from various companies from around the world because once again the metaverse is a global initiative we're talking about basically the sequel to the internet the, the metaverse is basically supposed to be the next internet so uh, obviously we'll have to wait and see what happens with that and now we're going to go to just a few smaller stories i don't think there was really like a huge story of the week this week resident evil capcom had another resident evil village showcase they announced a 60-minute time-limited demo is coming to all platforms May 1st through the 2nd in North America. PS4 and PS5 owners had early access to a 30-minute village and 30-minute castle demo last weekend. But for some weird reason, you only had an 8-hour window to play it. <laughs> and I love that during the presentation they said, oh, in celebration of... This being the eighth major Resident Evil entry, you only have eight hours to play. Like, what a convenient way, what a very nice way to put out some bad news, which is, hey, guess what? If you're working that day, you won't be able to try this demo out. Just super weird that they only gave people an eight-hour window to try it. They also announced that Mercenaries mode is back and now includes a shot between areas and abilities. Uh, excuse me, a shot between areas and now there are abilities 
within each uh, map or each level. They gave us a new look at the Resident Evil Infinite Darkness trailer coming to Netflix July 2021. This is a film that I have Netflix, so maybe it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. But sometimes I, I feel alone when it comes to Resident Evil in terms of this opinion on it. I've never been a huge Resident Evil fan. I played the original when it first came out. Really loved Resident Evil 2. And then around 3, I never really played 3 when it originally came out. Huge fan of Resident Evil 4. But I, I always say that when it comes to the modern entries of Resident Evil, surrounding anything Resident Evil at this point, I, I really think Capcom needs to take a step back and reimagine Resident Evil, almost like they did with Resident Evil 4. And I think what they did when they created Resident Evil 7, I just feel like it's time for just new characters. Is everything new? When I look at this Resident Evil Infinite Darkness trailer, I look at it and I think about the plot and the dialogue and the writing. And I feel like this, it feels like the same people that wrote the PlayStation 1 game wrote this film and the plot of zombies taking over the White House or whatever. I'm like, this just seems like super lame. It just seems super cheap. I don't know. Like maybe I'll give it a watch because I am a Netflix subscriber, but it's also one of those things where I wish they would really take a step back and like I said, just sort of reimagine everything about Resident Evil, the virus, the way the zombies react. I, I, I don't know. There's just something about this franchise at this point where as much as I like the nostalgia of Chris and Leon and Claire that I say to myself, I really wish they would just get rid of all these characters and just start over and leave the cheese at the door and, and give us something really grounded and maybe more leaning towards horror and survival like they did with Resident Evil 7. Like when I look at Resident Evil Village, for example, I think to myself, like, why is Chris even in this game? Like, they're introducing all these really cool characters. Obviously, a bunch of horny people around the world are obsessed with Lady... I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce her name, that nine-foot-tall zombie lady. And you look at these really cool characters that they're creating surrounding this game and creating a new protagonist. And I think about it, I'm like, why is Chris even in this game? Like, it's, you know, Capcom let it go. They also announced a Dead by Daylight crossover coming in June. And Resident Evil 4 coming to Oculus Quest VR. And I, I just have to put this out there. I really hate that Valve and PlayStation with PlayStation VR have... Actually, let me not talk about PlayStation VR because they're in this weird moment in between releases. But they've all basically dropped the ball when it comes to securing exclusive VR games. To think that Facebook is taking Oculus to this point where they're able to drop so much money and get Resident Evil 4 as an exclusive, get the next, you know, first Assassin's Creed VR, a Splinter Cell game VR exclusive to Oculus. And to me, as a person who is thinking about maybe one day getting into VR, I sure as hell do not want, <laughs> as a gamer, I do not, I wouldn't touch Oculus Quest with a 10-foot pole. I just hate Facebook. I wouldn't do it. So I really hope that Valve and PlayStation, when I bring out their PSVR for PlayStation 5, they really step their game up, especially Sony. We've I talked about so much about Sony approaching third-party publishers and developers to bring more exclusives to PlayStation. I hope that this time around they get really aggressive with going to these different companies and 
really speaking about and helping them bring a particular game that's successful and asking them, hey, how would you like to bring this into VR and make it a PlayStation exclusive? Very similar to what they did recently with Doom and bring it to VR. I think that was a PSVR exclusive. I'm not 100% sure. But yeah, that was pretty much a Resident Evil showcase. I don't know. Look, for me, Village is a game that looks kind of cool, but there's just something about it that doesn't have me super duper excited for it. I am looking forward to trying that demo when it comes out on uh, on May 1st but and, and see if I feel differently. But everything that I'm seeing from it, I understand the appeal of it. I understand why fans are excited. But this is something about the game that just doesn't have me like, man, I really want to play this day one when it's when it drops and when it comes out but it's looking to be on track to you know do really good in terms of having a very strong launch i think a lot of it will be dependent on word of mouth early on and how people feel about it the demo feedback that i've seen has been pretty strong within the sort of first two demos that they released so obviously we'll just have to wait and see our next story is about square enix and a sales report so this story originated from ctfn news which reported that square enix had received recent mna interest according to two bankers following digital gaming deals mna stands for mergers and acquisitions bloomberg then basically reposted the article but it within the article it didn't they didn't point out that they had asked Square Enix if the report was true or they were waiting for a comment back from Square Enix. So this story spread out. And for anyone that follows me personally on Twitter at WeAreJoel, I don't really comment on rumors as much as other Twitter people on Twitter do. I, I really have to be confident about a rumor in order to retweet it or comment about it. I have to feel really strong that this is a strong possibility of a rumor. The moment that I saw this whole thing about Square Enix being up for sale, the first thing I said was, this just can't be true. <laughs> I definitely don't believe that this is true. And I was so busy, I wasn't really able to dig into it in terms of where the story originated. I just knew that Bloomberg had just parroted it and basically just retweeted this article. And I wasn't sure if it came from within Bloomberg or whatever. And then by the time I looked at it again and I had some time to go back to Twitter and dig into it, I think by the time I did, Square Enix had already uh, released their statement that said, quote, Bloomberg has reported today that there is interest from several buyers to acquire Square Enix. However, this report is not based on any announcement by Square Enix Holdings Company Limited. We do not consider selling off the company or any part of its business, nor have we received any offer from any third party to acquire the company or any part of his businesses. And I think not only just within gaming, but I'm going to talk about just within gaming because obviously that's what this show is about. We've gotten to this point where so many people are that there's there's two bad things happening when it comes to rumors and speculation with our industry. Number one is the fever. There is this rampant fever from consumers and gamers when it comes to rumors and wanting to be inside of those walls and find out everything that's happening as soon as it's happening. And then the second issue when it comes to rumors within our industry are influencers within social medias like Twitter that have access to a lot of followers and, and media companies as a whole 
that refuse to do their due diligence when it comes to rumors. And it's more important for them to be first when it comes to reporting a when it comes to reporting speculation rather than actually being correct about it. So that's how you get these companies and big, you know, media outlets like IGN jumping on their story. Obviously, you also have to blame Bloomberg because Bloomberg is a big publication. So for them to put it out, I think that sort of made other people comfortable to talk about it. But for me, once again, whenever I hear a rumor, the first thing I think of is, okay, how much do I believe that this rumor is true? And look, for all intents and purposes, I do not think that Square Enix decided to come out and lie about it. When this news broke that there was a possible merger or acquisition being talked about, their stock price did rise a little bit and there are rules or regulations when it comes to to things like that. So Square Enix was legally, pretty much legally obligated to come right out and say, no, this isn't true because you can't allow this rumor to keep stoking fires and having it affect your stock price, for example. So they had to really come out and, and immediately squash this speculation from going on. But I, I just really hate that we're at this point within the industry where no one just wants to stop and think, wait a minute, is this sort of true like how true is this right now based upon all the information that you've recently had i had spoken about square enix not too long ago on the show about how great they're doing as a company how they've been really good at taking the cards that they have and spreading them across the table and really get getting very healthy returns on their products and becoming a really prominent and strong publisher, especially almost being recognized as a North American publisher because of their last two releases with Marvel's Avengers and Outriders and really getting comfortable with this current evolution in gaming that we're seeing when it comes to online play and, and connected entertainment, for example. Why would you ever think that anyone in Square Enix would be interested in selling the company at this point? It just it literally doesn't make any sense. I can understand them maybe if there was a rumor about them shopping around a certain studio under their belt, for example, or maybe shopping around an intellectual property. But they did that with Hitman. We're going to talk about that shortly with Iowa Inter Interactive when they felt that they had nothing more to offer with Hitman that they started to shop around not just that IP, but Iowa Interactive as a company. You know, I could see them doing that, and I really wish they would just sell Sleeping Dogs to someone so I could get another Sleeping Dogs game, for example. I, I really wish more companies would look internally at their intellectual properties and think to themselves, are we not going to do something with this? Let's just sell it to a company that might be interested in making a sequel. I really wish they would just let Sleeping Dogs go. I'm tired of holding my breath waiting for a sequel to that amazing game. But yeah, I, I just really want to touch on how much I, I dislike what our industry has turned into with this fever of rumors and speculation and wanting to know so badly about what's being worked on behind closed doors for these different companies from the different publishers and developers. And the fact that a rumor can come out and the people should 
that should be responsible with this type of stuff in terms of not spreading this rumor and creating this false narrative and creating this fever of people talking about, oh my God, who, who could it be? It better be PlayStation, PlayStation, Sony better be buying Square Enix, all Xboxes looking for more, you know, Japanese development. It's probably going to be Xbox and creating all this BS for something that's just an a- absolutely nothing. And all, all it really takes is just not even a minute, just literally like 20 seconds of critical thought when it comes to the story of Square Enix being sold. And you can absolutely come to the conclusion of, yeah, there's just absolutely no, no way in hell Square Enix would allow themselves to be sold. And if they are, they're probably going to be asking for a very high price for the company. It just doesn't make sense for because we're not really just talking about a developer we're talking about a publisher here it just wouldn't really make sense for them to to do that at this point especially for a japanese company it's not as simple for an american company to buy a japanese company for example like so this rumor was just for me personally was just dead in the water from the very beginning so let's move on to io interactive for those that don't know there's a studio behind hitman they're working on an upcoming 007 video game, which I'm very much excited for. They announced that they're opening a third studio in Barcelona, Spain. The company's statement reads, quote, all three of the IO Interactive Studios are treated as elite studios and will each make a significant impact to ongoing development and publishing efforts across all projects. According to IO Interactive, they are working on a third completely new IP, and obviously we don't quite know what that is yet. It, sort of sounds like maybe we won't hear about that for a little bit of time it's probably something that they're just getting started on we'll probably hear more news about 007 before we hear about whatever this third completely new ip one of my favorite sentences in our industry right there completely new (laughs) intellectual property and i thought that would be interesting to highlight just kind of the journey that ioi or io interactive has gone through as a company because I think it's really an, an amazing story. This is a company that was founded in September 1998. It was acquired by IDOS in 2004. And then IDOS was acquired by Square Enix in 2009. Then around 2017, Square Enix started shopping IOI around. And instead of being acquired again, IO Interactive decided to perform what's called a management buyout and basically become an independent studio that meant that the management inside of io interactive basically bought their company back from square enix and along with that sale they regained the rights to two games hitman and freedom fighters i think the ip that square enix kept was mini ninjas and one of my cult classic favorites which was Kane and Lynch. That's another IP that's probably just in the Square Enix vault. I'm never going to get my third Kane and Lynch, unfortunately. And it's interesting because within the story is this sort of admission from Square Enix where not only was the Hitman game that they published, I honestly don't remember what entry it was that they published, not only did it not really do very well, but they also apparently internally felt that as a publisher, they had nothing more to offer Hitman as a franchise. And they knew that it would be better off in other hands. And that was one of the reasons why they were shopping around. And it's 
just really interesting that IO Interactive, obviously, that group of managers believed in, you know, that IP enough to basically put their own money up and buy the company back and buy the IP back. I don't think the amount was ever publicly revealed. And obviously, ever since that happened in 2017, they've opened, you know, IOI has opened two additional studios. They basically, in my mind, successfully revived Hitman because I feel like Hitman was, I felt like it was a franchise that was sort of going on its way out. And they experimented with the episodic treatment when it came to the, what was it, the World of Assassination Trilogy, whatever it is that they call it. And they self-published their first title just this year with Hitman 3. And it was a massive success, according to their CEO, Hakan Abrak or Abrak. Hitman 3 was not only the highest rated entry in the series, it sold 300% better than Hitman 2, and it actually was able to recoup development costs within a single week. He also revealed last week that they are looking into publishing third-party games at some point, and it's just really interesting to see when companies do this. It's reminding me of the journey that Bungie went through from first making Halo and being acquired by Microsoft and then becoming independent and then being picked up by Activision, releasing Destiny and then becoming independent again, taking their IP with them. It's just really interesting when companies are able to do stuff like this because we've seen historically within our industry and just like many other industries out there, when you are the creative arm of something that is made nine times out of 10, you no longer own your own creation. And I look at it also, another great example would be a company like Platinum Games, which created a lot of strong intellectual properties for other companies. And now that they're finally independent, they'll be able, they will be able to do that for themselves and be able to maintain 100% of the rights to their characters and worlds and their creations which is something that has become, you know, not so common in our industry as a developer. When you create a deal with a publisher, part of that deal really is that the publisher now controls the intellectual property. So, you know, characters like Bayonetta, Platinum no longer owns Bayonetta. I think it's owned partially by Sega and partially by Nintendo at this point. And they would have to basically put money up in order to buy that character back. Same thing with Astral Chain. I think Nintendo owns that IP. Wonderful 101, I think uh, Nintendo owns that IP. You know, it's cool to see what IO has been able to go through, not just from becoming a developer that was being shopped around and now to turning into a publisher, self-publishing a game and having their first title recoup development costs within a week. That's just absolutely incredible. The fact that they're now looking into becoming not only just a developer, but publishing third-party games, almost similar to what Square Enix was able to do for themselves as a company. It's pretty amazing. And I think, I'm sure Sony, I, I talked about this last week. I'm, I'm sure IO Interactive is one of those companies that Sony has been calling to, to make a timed exclusive deal because this is definitely a team that you want to be associated with at this point after how successful hitman 3 is I'm, i would definitely if i'm xbox or if i'm playstation i'm very interested in terms of what that next ip is and i guarantee you sony is looking into 
potentially trying to get that 007 game as a time exclusive. There's something about 007 and PlayStation that sort of just sounds good together in terms of getting James Bond exclusively on the PlayStation. I feel like that's something that Sony is very interested in doing. And before we go, I wanted to touch on Days Gone once again. So last week we spoke about Sony not greenlighting a Days Gone sequel. After that happened, over 47,000 people have signed a petition asking Sony to approve a sequel. Spoiler alert for everyone that signed that petition. Sony's not going to pay absolutely any attention to it. You could literally have 500,000 people sign that petition people at sony are gonna be like why didn't y'all just go buy the game <laughs> you know the, these that petition is gonna do absolutely nothing i'll tell you right now the creative even though you know what let me take a step back i think one positive i guess of signing that petition is i'm sure the people that work that days gone are very grateful for it that you guys are showing them love but there's no one at Sony that's looking at that and going, hey, guys, let's have another meeting about Days Gone. Look at how many people signed this petition. The uh, Last week, the creative director and writer of Days Gone has said that players should buy games at full price if they like them instead of waiting for them to go on sale or be given away as part of services like PlayStation Plus. And it's got an immediate reaction from the internet they looked at it as well what am i supposed to do am i supposed to buy the game twice how am i gonna know if i like a game if i don't wait for reviews or for other people to play it why am i buying the game at you know full price and the way that i looked at this is we always have to think about whenever we hear a a quote or someone saying something that we disagree with or we find weird in terms of contact in terms of content we also have to think about the context behind what was said and the fact that, once again, this is the creative director and the writer of Days Gone that is saying this. And when it comes to a creation that you make, you always want it to be successful. And once again, this is the difference between the creative arm and the publishing arm within our industry and pretty much across industries is as a creative, you want it to be extremely successful. You obviously hope for the chance at continuing the story that you created. And I'm sure that not being able to continue that and being told that you will not be able to make a sequel is a cause for frustration. And that's how I looked at this quote. It came across to me as a person who is very close to this project, obviously being the creative director and the writer of the game. And this is a quote that's coming directly from a person who is once again, very close to this project. It's his baby, right? So he's going to say things like that. Hey, you know what? You should have bought the game at a full, at, at, at full price. I don't think it's proper for us to just judge him on the surface in terms of who the hell is this guy to tell people like, oh, you have to buy games at full price. This guy is the person who worked on this game. And I'm sure not only was it frustrating for him to find out they're not getting the sequel, it was frustrating for him the fact that he's no longer at Ben's studio for whatever reason that was. And it probably is very frustrating to see all this speculation, the Bloomberg story, everyone talking about 
Days Gone and Days Gone 2, why Sony did not green light it, the fact that Sony is not looking into taking any more risks, for example. And you're probably looking at none of you know exactly what happened or what went, went wrong. You guys, none of you know the exact reason why they said no. So I'm sure a lot of that is a cause to once again be very frustrated and say things like this, almost like a, you know, an emotional response and emotional an emotional quote to what's happening with days gone and he said quote i do have an opinion on something that your audience may find of interest and it might piss some of them off garvin replied if you love a game buy it at fucking full price i can't tell you how many times i've seen gamers say yeah i got that on sale i got it through ps plus whatever so once again i on one hand i understand what he's saying on the other hand i can equally say that you are partially wrong about that garvin we live in the world that a 59.99 is a lot for video games and even just the entry point into our current generation is pretty expensive we're talking about 499 dollars right now going into this current generation we're looking at games launching at 69.99 i think that's why a lot of people are looking towards game pass for example as such an amazing value playstation plus as such an amazing value is that you're getting for lack of another term great return you're getting a lot of value for that monthly fee that you're paying but on top of that you as a publisher should look at this as a positive because when games come to playstation plus that's a whole new audience that you're now appealing to when games drop to, to $20, $30, $40 and go on sale. You're now appealing to a much larger audience that once again, yes, there are people that will look at games and say, oh, I'm not paying $59.99 for that. But there are also a lot of people in this world that say, yeah, you know what? I can't pay $59.99 for that game. Hopefully at some point drops to 40 or 20 and I'll be able to get it. And that thought process happens across the board, even at something like God of War, which had very, very strong sales at launch, had a very strong critical response. There are thousands and thousands of people across the world that looked at that game and said, damn, that game looks really interesting, but I can't pay $59.99 right now. And those are the people that buy their systems secondhand, for example. Not everyone has the money to go out and buy a system and buy a game when it first launches. So it's very short-sighted. I think it's, you know, honestly a little borderline rude to tell people like, hey, you pissed off that there's no sequel, buy it at full price. I don't really think that that's the proper way to look at it. But once again, the other side of the coin, I also understand the emotional response to this, which is, from the perspective of a director and a creator of a game, you're going to look at it as what you did was 100% right. You're going to look at it as, hey, these create, excuse me, these characters that I created, this story that I put my heart and soul into it, there was nothing wrong with that. I, we created a great game. What was wrong was the reviewers who shitted on it and Sony didn't market it right. Or it's almost like you're trying to find someone else to blame. And I think the last person that you should be blaming is the audience that has basically been the reason for your game to almost get this, you know, second wind. I had talked about this game last week as the best way to look at Days Gone is it's really become a cult classic. And that's the best way to categorize this game because it's what happens to 
a lot of films. So, for example, one of my favorite cult classic comedies, for example, is Grandma's Boy. For anyone who's never seen Grandma's Boy, first of all, if you're a gamer, you're going to love the film more so than anyone else. But even if you're not, I think it's one of the movies that I quote the most, especially with one of my best friends, David. Him and I are constantly consistently quoting that film and it was a movie that honestly neither of us even remembers when it hit movie theaters like it was just this film that really flew under the radar because it didn't really have this huge marketing budget but the moment it hit dvd and everyone started watching it that what happens it becomes a cult classic because of word of mouth and that's definitely what happened with days gone it had a horrendous launch and i think it really was due to a couple things number one the protagonist was this generic white dude so it's this really boring uh person that you are putting your feet into their shoes you're already starting with this generic boring character to begin with someone that doesn't really feel like they have a lot of layers and you put them into a world filled with a generic enemy like zombies that are so diluted at this point in entertainment on top of exclusively launching it on a system where you live in a shadow of The Last of Us, for example, that almost has that, that sort of same drab apocalyptic setting. And you have to make sure that your marketing team is doing an amazing job of trying to highlight why people should care for your main character and why people should care about this story. And more importantly, what sets you apart from any other zombie game that's out there and what sets you apart from The Last of Us. So in my opinion, if, if I was marketing Days Gone, I honestly would have looked a little bit more at something like Dead Rising. I would have looked at showing more of the fun of combat and more of the fun of the game. And I think they really wanted to market it as a little bit more story-based and they took too long, in my opinion, to show gameplay and really deep dive into the game and show people what they can expect at launch. I would have tried to find a more lighthearted angle to the game and instead of almost mirroring The Last of Us marketing when it came to, hey, check out this drab, apocalyptic, sad story with zombies in it. So I think the marketing for that game was really what failed it. But the reason why we're still talking about Days Gone even before that Bloomberg story was, once again, the cult status of it, more and more people picked it up and they were the ones that went on social media and told their friends about like, hey, you know what? This game Days Gone is actually not that bad because I've said this before on this show. This is why I hate reviews. Like, don't trust reviews. Look at it as just exactly what it is. It's an opinion, right? And it definitely was one of the reasons why this game did so poorly but because before i talk about metacritic this other you know this quote came on because david jaffe had this man on his podcast or his video cast whatever it was and jaffe asked a question but how do you know you love a game until you've played it his response was quote i'm just saying you don't but don't complain if a game doesn't get a sequel if it wasn't supported at launch garvin replied it's like God of War got whatever number of millions of sales at launch and Days Gone didn't. I'm just speaking for me personally as a developer. I don't work for Sony. I don't know what the numbers on, or excuse me, numbers are. So once again, a very passionate response to what's happening, but launch numbers aren't the only thing that really get a company to green light a sequel. At the end of the day, like, yes, launch numbers matter. Launch uh, reviews matter. 
but it's also about legs because there are a lot of games that might have a poor launch but have strong legs afterwards. And a lot of that is up to the publisher. When it came to Days Gone, I think that Sony just left it to die. It, it almost reminds me of what Sony did with Dreams. It was released and Sony's not really doing much when it comes to supporting these games post-launch. And you can't say the same about God of War, Horizon, or Last of Us even. Sony put a lot of marketing dollars behind those games and the reason why they did is because it was a proven success already so it's a lot easier for them to say hey let's put more money up as opposed to days gone where they looked at it as hey this game didn't really turn out to be very unique and it looks like sony internally didn't put a lot of time in terms of hey how can we market this game in a way where we can get people excited for it. And it looks like they just didn't want to go for that ride. For me, that's the reason why this game doesn't have a sequel. When it comes to launch, once again, $59.99, and you're talking about trying to convince, excuse me, convince people to purchase a brand new intellectual property, you have to get people excited for it. And at the end of the day, when you look at the drum up to Ghost of Tsushima compared to Days Gone, it's very different. Ghost of Tsushima, the reason why it had a very strong launch, wasn't because it had this strong development team behind it, Sucker Punch, but it's also because it was very unique. It was a unique setting for a lot of people that were looking at a new video game to play. It was a unique time in history. So that uniqueness was what drove a lot of the response for people to get really excited for it at launch. And you can't really say the same about Days Gone. It's Sony's fault that this game failed at launch. If people aren't buying your game at launch, it's not because of reviews. It's because you as a company, as Sony, did not do an amazing job getting people excited for it. And if you are the creative director and the writer of Days Gone, you have to put that on your shoulders too. If you don't sit there and say to yourself, man, looking back at it, I really cr created this really fucking boring, generic white dude as my protagonist. Maybe that was one of the issues behind this game not really doing well in the current climate that we live in, in, in the year and the time that we live in. The generic white dude isn't really doing a lot for a lot of people. And if you are doing that, then you have to do a great job of showing the layering and, and the different dimensions to that character. And he also had this quote on Metacritic quote. I took it hard, to be honest, because, again, this is just the reality of Sony. Metacritic scores everything. If you're the creative director on a franchise and your game is coming out to a 70, you're not going to be the creative director on that franchise for very long. One of the things that I absolutely hate that our industry has turned into is this absolute reliance on Metacritic when it comes to gauging the success or the potential success of a video game when it's released. I've said this before on the show. I hate how much as an industry, and I'll just talk about our industry. I'm not going to talk about other entertainment, specifically about our industry, how much fans and gamers have put into review scores. I think People need to take a step back and companies need to step, take a step back also and realize that reviews, let's categorize reviews for exactly what they are. They are opinions. They are not professional opinions. You know, a game reviewer and a game critic, their opinion does not hold more weight than mine because they have a bigger platform 
than I do. The strongest opinion for a video game is a word of mouth trusted opinion. The 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 word of Jason Schreier and Jeff Grubb on Days Gone does not hold the same weight as my best friend does, for example. It does not hold the same weight as my favorite Twitch streamer, for example. Word of mouth is the strongest review that you can have. It's not IGN 7, 8, 9, 10, for example. And we have various examples that can be given where reviewers get it very wrong. The most recent example being any reviewer they gave Cyberpunk a 9 or a 10. I don't even think Cyberpunk, and and even an 8, you would have to convince me that you're giving Cyberpunk 2077 an 8. So reviewers get it very wrong a lot of times. And the fact that companies look at greenlighting a sequel based on Metacritic, they look at the future of someone's job based on Metacritic. The fact that this person is implying that his position as a creative director was put into jeopardy 48 hours after a game was launched. That's a pretty shitty feeling to think about the amount of pressure that you have to be put through in order to think that, hey, I put five years of my life into this game and it cannot be destroyed within a week by a bunch of random people on the internet that tell me that their opinion is way more professional or holds more weight than the people that are actually going out and spending the $59.99 to buy this game. Because let's be honest, when it comes to the majority of the reviews that have the most amount of weight on Metacritic, we're talking about the big publications, IGN, PC Gamer, GameSpot, you know, they're not going out there paying $59.99. For this, for for days gone, they're getting that game completely for free, and you've got to be you're shitting me if you don't think that getting a game for free and not putting any money into it does not skew your review. It absolutely does. When you don't pay for something, it hits different. Let's be honest. Something free hits way more different than something that you pay for, and you're crazy to not think that that's the absolute truth. And on top of that, historically, I could dig through and spend hours going to Metacritic and comparing it to sales, and I'm very confident that I can show that there isn't a strong enough connection between the two. A recent example would be Outriders. Outriders, a lot of people are looking at it as it had a really strong launch. Game Pass really put it into the spotlight for a lot of people that were probably missing on it. Even those on Game Pass, it was still at the top of the list when it came to Xbox's sales. You know, for a lot of people that think that Game Pass does not equate to strong sales, the Metacritic for Outriders was a 73. But that's a game that, that's one of those games where it's like, forget what the Metacritic score is. This is a game that I know is going to grow. And at the end of the, the day, it's a game that you purchase to have fun with your friends. Like, who gives a shit for anyone giving it a 6 or a 7 out of 10? I don't care what IGN says about a game. I care what a specific person is telling me about a game. At the end of the day, Hades had really strong reviews. It was the moment that I thought to myself, okay, I have to get Hades. When Val came, you know, text me, and was like, dude, you have to get into Hades. And the reason why is because Val and I historically 
do not like roguelike games. It's one of the things that him and I agree on as friends that with we love this industry, but roguelike is just not a game that we particularly like. And he came to me and said, look, I'm playing Hades and this is the first one that I think actually works when it comes to this this loop of dying and, and playing over and over. And the moment he said that to me, I said, okay, I got to play Hades now. So I don't care that Hades got all these awards that IGN was giving it nines and all these other great review scores. That was all defeated by one of my closest friends telling me, hey, man, you got to pick up this game. So I really hope that we do get to a point as an industry where our industry starts to take way more responsibility for what they're putting out, what they're doing. So for Sony to put the responsibility of people's job, people's bonuses, the way people are paid on opinions of complete strangers, people who 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 weren't who weren't shooting in the gym, who weren't there for those 5 years that you were putting into a video game. Now you're telling me that, you know, my 4 or $5,000 bonus is dependent on a two-point difference, whether IGN gives me a seven or a nine on my video game. It's complete bullshit, and it's something that us as an industry have to get away from. We have to put stop putting so much weight on reviews, and we have to realize that this is just a professional opinion. How many movies out there have you seen that when you go in the Rotten Tomato score, it's an absolute shit score, because these reviewers think that they know more and they know more about film and film theory and direction and cinematography and lighting and direction and all this crap. They know writing. They know all this shit. They know way more than you do. And how many people have dumped on a franchise like Fast and the Furious for being, oh, this movie is shallow. Where's the story development? Bruh, like I'm here to watch Dom jump out of a plane without a parachute and perfectly land inside a car and jump over three trains and that that I know what I'm here for bro like we're we're here for stupid entertainment that's what we're here for right so I feel like the same exact way about video you're a human being you breathe the same air that I do like how am I going to sit here and think that because you have a job writing about video games that your opinion is worth more weight than mine is no that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And I'm sure there are multiple games that you can find in your library that you can step away from and say, man, I absolutely love this game. And when you looked at the reviews, they probably just absolutely dumped on it. Or you had the the, the opposite reaction. A bunch of people are saying that this game is great and you play Cyberpunk and I go to myself, how is it possible that any of you thought that this game was worth an eight or nine or 10 or whatever, what have you. So I really hope that we get to this point where we start to walk away from how important Metacritic is. Once again, I absolutely hate Metacritic. I hate that we're putting so much weight. No one digs deep into why these games were given this score. People just look at the score. No one likes to read. We're just, this whole system exists to make people lazier and lazier and not do any critical thinking at all and i think that's it that's all i'm trying to think is there more that i want to talk about when it comes to today's gone look if you want a days gone sequel i guess go buy the pc game go talk it up go share it 
even if you're not going to buy it, go share the game. If you loved it, go tell people why Days Gone is fun and it's great. And who knows, maybe at some point, Sony will greenlight a Days Gone 2. I can tell you right now, nothing is put aside forever. Maybe at some point, Sony will change their mind. But what's going to get them to change their mind is people continuing to talk about this game. And obviously, if the PC sales are strong, it will it will force Sony to give it a second look. This week's hot releases tomorrow, April 20th, we have MLB The Show 21, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and will also be coming to Game Pass day one. April 22nd, we have MotoGP 21, PC, PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series X, and Switch. Shantae, we have Switch. Shantae only coming to Switch. April 23rd, we have Battle Axe coming to PC, Xbox One. Judgment Next Gen Upgrade, PS5, Xbox Series X. Now we have Near Replicant version 1.22474487139 coming to PC, PS4, and Xbox One. Time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. Speaking with routers or routers, CD Projekt Red President and Joint CEO Adam Krasinski said that the developer is in it for the long haul when it comes to fixing Cyberpunk 2077. Quote, I don't see an option to shelve Cyberpunk 2077. We're convinced that we can bring the game to such a state that we can be proud of it and therefore successfully sell it for years to come. Look, you don't have a choice, actually. <laughs> like, don't sit there and think that you have this choice to just shelve the game. You have to fix it. You are in still in the middle of a PR disaster shitstorm. It has now been four months since the game left the PlayStation Store. It still has not been added back into the PlayStation Store. I don't know who told you, buddy, but you literally have no choice in this. You have to continue fixing Cyberpunk 27. You put way too much money and investment into this intellectual property to let it die. Gabriel Luna, who played Ghost Rider on ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., has been cast as Joel's brother Tommy in the upcoming The Last of Us HBO series if there's something that i absolutely love in terms of hbo as a studio is that they are one of the best when it comes to casting and this is another brilliant casting decision for the last of a series just absolutely perfect i think this man is a great actor and i'm very excited to see him working beside Pedro Pascal. I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. Speaking with IGN, now retired Nintendo artist and desire Takaya Imamura revealed that he thought about reviving F-Zero many times, but without a grand new idea, it's hard to bring back. He's absolutely right. When it comes to Nintendo, you cannot go to Nintendo or NCL and say, hey, let's bring back F-Zero or let's revive the franchise. They're always going to come back to you and say why you need a grand idea to bring back. So for example, before speaking about Mario Kart 8, you would have to, as a director or a creative within Nintendo, you have to go to that meeting equipped. And what they did was, let me show you this idea we came up with. What if in Mario Kart 8, you can ride upside down on the tracks? That was the grand idea that they had. That was the wow moment that they delivered to their fans. And F-Zero, its original wow moment, when it first launched was the technology. And then when we think about the GameCube version, it was that sense of speed that they delivered to people. That was really their wow moment for F-Zero. So if you're coming back with F-Zero to Nintendo, you can't just talk about speed anymore. You also have to come up with, well, this is 
what our wow moment is. In my opinion, Captain Falcon is now a big enough character because of Super Smash Brothers. Look, just just give him a beat him up game or something like that with F-Zero races in between. I don't know. I feel like Captain Falcon is his own character at this point. I feel like you can give him a side-scrolling adventure and people will be happy with it. According to Bloomberg, Amazon has canceled an in-development Lord of the Rings MMO. It first announced in 2019. This instantly reminded me of the story where a few weeks back, I talked about on Camp Koji, where Amazon announced a new studio led by former Rainbow Six Siege developers. Once again, seeing an, yet another game that they canceled, I have absolutely no idea who in this day and age would want to work for Amazon. I absolutely would not take that risk until they have their first success as a studio, knowing the type of company that Amazon is, how profit concentrated that company is. I need my return. You're definitely not going to have any creative freedom. I have no idea who would want to work for them. Before we go, shout out to Respawn Entertainment. Last week, they revealed Apex Legends reached 100 million players. Also, shout out to Sony and the PlayStation 5. The PS5 became the best-selling console in the UK for the second month in a row and has already surpassed the PlayStation Vita, Sega Dreamcast, and Nintendo Wii U in terms of UK sales. Over its first four, excuse me, over its first five months on the market, the PS5 also became the fastest-selling console ever in the United States in both unit and dollar sales. No surprise there at all, but still very great accomplishment from Sony and PlayStation. Thank you so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Kenkoji Future Updates. Please, please, if you listen to this podcast, please share it. It definitely helps out with our growth. And if you are on a platform that allows reviews, such as Apple Podcasts, please, please, please leave us a five-star review. It would mean a lot to me if you take a few seconds out of your day to leave us a review and a rating. It definitely helps us out. That's our show for this week. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next week.